Hello. Welcome to Season 3 of the Pictures Out There podcast series. In this podcast, Lee and Dave talk about technology and tech radar, cancel culture, George Orwell, Aldous Huxley, Dwight Eisenhower, Dalai Lama, the happiest man in the world, and Martin Sheen. And now, here's Dave and Lee. Good morning. Hello, this is Lee. And this is Dave. And welcome to our present day audience. Thank you very much, Candy, for that kind introduction. We'd like to greet our present audience, our audiences years, decades, perhaps centuries from now. Dave, let's don't neglect our future advanced intelligence audience. They're here. Hey, alien audience and our universal audience. Once again, we're so glad to have you listening and thanks for joining us. We begin always by asking these two questions for your reflection. What are your ideals? What are your pictures? Lee, we kick off things today with a segment that we do some number of podcasts, every 15.5 podcast item. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) 14.7 repeating. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) That we call, what's the new thing to To be be afraid afraid of? of. What should we be fearful (laughs) of? What should we be fearful of now? (laughs) We actually pulled out an article that now is about nine years old, which is kind of interesting in and of itself. It's written by Carrie Marshall, Tech Radar. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so uh, we're going to do some excerpts from here. And this is her article is titled 12 Technologies That Scared the World Senseless. I say senseless, not something else-less. Right, <laughs> you know? right, right, right. Keep it PG-13. But it, but it probably did that too. It probably did. You know? So so Carrie says that every time there's a new technology, someone tells us that it heralds the end of the world as we know it. This year, this is back in 2014, it's social networks killing the art of communication. Mm-hmm. Okay, here, here nine years later, that statement in and of itself is really interesting. Uh, but doom and gloom, Carrie continues to say, isn't a new development in tech. Many of the things we take for granted once scared the willies out of out someone. Out of someone, <laughs> yeah. So let's begin with trains. Mm. Okay, choo-choo trains. Choo-choo When the Stockton-Darlington Railway opened in 1825, people feared the worst. Well, surely the human body was not made to travel at such incredible speeds of 30 miles per hour. Oh my God, what's going to happen? All of our tissues just going to blow apart. People genuinely believed that going that fast would kill you in gruesome ways, such as melting your body. Hadn't happened yet, but I guess it still could. I tell you what, I have not yet been on one of the Japanese bullet trains, so I'm still got a little fear, a little bit of fear. Yeah, they seem to be going okay, though. So, (laughs) yeah. Another thing that inspired some uh, wonderful fear is telephones. So the telephone wasn't greeted with universal enthusiasm. Some elderly people feared that touching it would give them electric Electric shocks, shocks, while men worried that their wives would waste too much time gossiping. In Sweden, preachers said the phone was the instrument of the devil, and phone lines were stolen or sabotaged. Others feared that the lines were conduits for evil spirits. The invention of telesales actually (laughs) would kind of prove them right. (laughs) Instrument of the devil? Yeah, maybe so. It just took took like what a couple of hundred years for that to really play out to where it was the instrument. The devil can work very slowly, I guess. (laughs) You know, in that case. Okay, how about another thing that we were fearful of in its uh, debut? That was television. Mm. 
uh, we've all probably been told to sit farther away from the TV for fear of ruining our eyesight. But it turns out that there's fire behind that smoke. Uh-huh. In the late 1960s, mm. General Electric did indeed ship faulty television sets that emitted dangerous x-rays for real, and officials warned against sitting too close as a result. GE fixed the problem, but the scare lived on. You know, Lee, we've talked about how if it happens one time, then that means that an entire set of fears is completely valid. Right. And so I think the fact that this happened one time with GE televisions means that we should be absolutely scared like crazy about all of these things well we've erected a little fencing system in our home so that you're always at least six feet from the television yeah oh yeah. i've heard it needs to be seven feet but you know <laughs> you can make that adjustment okay another one we had was crt or cathode ray tube monitors if you all recall those in the mid-2000s meaning that decade there were widespread concerns that radiation from crt monitors could cause miscarriages in pregnant women Initial studies suggested a link couldn't be replicated, but the display industry did adopt TCO-93 and TCO-95 safety standards to reduce CRT radiation anyway. Yeah, so there is just an infinitesimal amount of radiation that is indeed emitted, but not enough to cause miscarriages or any other health concerns. And over time, in these technologies, usually somebody will try to be responsible and fix something that's giving the public concern because it makes them sell more products. They make more money. It may be out of (laughs) self-interest so that we can enrich our uh, revenue stream. Uh, Let's talk about Wi-Fi. The killer Wi-Fi scare actually has the same roots as the killer CRT scare. It's about invisible radiation some people believe has terrible effects. In this case, electrosensitivity and cancer. Newspapers ran lots of lurid headlines about the potential dangers of Wi-Fi, but to date, there's no reliable evidence of any ill effects from wireless data of any kind. Now, this article's from 2014, and of course, in the intervening time, these concerns about Wi-Fi have made us get rid of it completely. Yeah. Now, there's no Wi-Fi right. today, right? <laughs> right? Right. So it's just it's just kind of interesting, these fears that pop up. Okay. Oh, I love this one. Yes. What about the Y2K bug? In uh, the run-up to the year 2000, we were told that computers' reliance on two-digit year fields meant that when the new millennium dawned, we'd be dodging falling airplanes, getting stuck in lifts, and generally, that's elevators for for those of us in different parts of the world, and generally experiencing a kind of post-apocalyptic wasteland. In the end, nothing happened, which either proves that the people who fought the Y2K bug did a fantastic job (laughs) of saving the world, or it proves that the whole thing was a load of made-up bollocks all along. Yeah. Uh, having lived through the Y2K bug, my vote is in the latter yeah. category. Boy, yeah. but, but wasn't it crazy? It was a cottage industry for a year. Oh. That, uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Let's turn our attention now to robots. Ooh. They are among us. They're coming over here. They're taking our jobs. Well, actually, that one came kind of true. Yeah, that one did. <laughs> Particularly in the automotive industry. Digital technology has replaced humans in all kinds of fields, whether it is sampling Replacing session musicians, uh, automatic teller machines, self-scanning checkouts, replacing clerks, 
and supermarket staff and Google's self-driving cars and Japan's care robots suggest the process of robots making human redundant is only just beginning. Fascinating to see you know, robots and now so much of the conversation is around AI. And so this, this conversation's been going on a long time and science fiction, of course, has been dealing with this for decades and decades. And so it's always interesting watching the, the issue and the concern morph a little bit. Okay, here's another one. Cloning. When Dolly the Sheep, do we all remember Dolly the Sheep, hit the headlines in 1997, U.S. physicist Richard Seed promised to clone the first humans within 18 months and later promised that the first clone would be of himself. (laughs) There's still only one of him. Nobody's making clones for spare parts or working on a clone army for world domination, as far as we know. Or if they are, they're keeping it awfully quiet. (laughs) So uh, U.S. physicist Richard Seed had one of two motivations. He thought he would clone himself so that he wouldn't potentially harm anyone else. Or he had a very high self-esteem. Oh, Lord, Uh, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way, right? (laughs) Let's turn our attention to cassette recorders. Now, home taping is killing music. That was what a campaign told us back in the 1980s, about 40 years ago now. The rise of cheap cassette recorders meant that taping records off the radio would surely destroy the music business. Uh, It didn't, but the fear of cassette piracy was enough to ensure that when a digital version came along, the U.S. record industry tried to have it banned. That didn't work, and a few years later, the internet and Napster made the industry efforts and much of the industry redundant. Do you remember Napster? Yes. You could go freely pirate music. (laughs) Yeah, it was a software platform that permitted you to pirate music. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, we have Spotify and Apple Music and streaming like crazy. So since 2014, obviously, all of this has continued to evolve. I think what's really interesting to me about this with the music industry is how the ways that people make money has really shifted yes. you know, to where most of it is giving concerts now for if you're a performer. Right. There's little made off of songwriting royalties and that, but people have shifted. Mm-hmm. People have changed what they're doing. And in some cases, that particular thing may not make as much money as it did before, but there's other ways of monetizing things and people have shifted. Yeah. yeah. And, and you and I are music lovers. Have yeah. we stopped consuming music? Oh, no. More than ever. More than ever. Yep. Yep. Okay, what about VHS video recorders? There's some of these where it's kind of like, there were these things, things called VHS yeah, now kids, recorders. Yeah, yes. gather around. Some of y'all listening, and certainly those of you in the future, probably going, what in the hell were those? So anyway, this is uh, Jack Valenti, who is uh, at the time Motion Picture Association of America. I think he was the president mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. He was talking to the U.S. government in an appeal to have video recorders banned. I say to you <laughs> that the VCR is to the American film producer and the American public. This is a gruesome analogy he makes. As the Boston Strangler is to the woman home alone. Thank you for that, Jack. I mean, shameful <laughs> on him, first of all, for this horrible oh, analogy. Con- continue, please. And he go, But he goes on to say, the technology would make the film industry bleed and bleed and hemorrhage. Well, video, it, yeah, it's, it's hard to even imagine somebody saying that. We, we, I think, have gotten a little bit better, I hope. Video would subsequently save 
the U.S. film industry, creating a massive global market for video cassette sales and rentals, a market that would continue as DVD, probably more of you remember that, mm -hmm. replaced VHS, and the same films were sold all over, over again. again. <laughs> yes, it actually was a tremendous boom yeah. to the industry. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Jack Valenti can go back in his hole. And all so, right. Yeah, we have the arm wrestle over... Uh, people going to theaters here in 2023, those of you in the future, versus people staying at home. Yes. Watching movies at home. Yes. And there's kind of this arm wrestle going on over which way, tilt, which way is that going to tilt. Mm -hmm. And five or ten years from now, it'll be very interesting to see what that is. Yeah. But adjustments will be made. Yeah, it'll look different mm -hmm. then than it does now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's take on the topic of TXT speak. TXT. Texting. Text texting. Is text ruining the English language? <gasps> Asked the British Broadcasting Company in 2003, no doubt in an accent much like this one. <laughs> Very good. After one bemused teacher received an essay written entirely in text message shorthand that's, from a student. That's horrible. The answer was no. Kids have always used their own slang, acronyms, and abbreviations, and the media has always panicked about it. LOL. LOL. Yeah. I love now how the, how the act, just like before, it's kind of like, the and this is nine years ago, so LOL at that time was probably pretty new. Yeah. Now you'll have people, the LOL police, who are like, God, I'm so sick of people doing LOL. But it's a lot better if they do this mm -hmm. acronym, yeah. you know. SMH, shaking my yeah, head. LMAO yes. or something like right, that. Yeah, right, 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 yeah. right. Okay, we'll move on now to video games. Oh, I love this one. So Carrie writes, take your pick. They make kids fat. They kill your social skills. They're training manuals for mass murderers. <laughs> Players stay indoors so long they get rickets. They're so involving that gamers will forget to reproduce and men will die out altogether. <laughs> and she says video games remain the go-to guys when tabloids want to explain the dark deeds of confused yes. young men. Yes. But not women who play video games in near-identical numbers, but who don't generally become crazed killers. It's almost as if there's a more complex explanation. No, no, wow. I, re I reject that. Yeah. If you play Mortal Kombat, you're a serial killer the next day. Yeah. Th yeah. This is a great example. Lee and I talk about going from simple to complex to simple yes. to be wise. Yes. Yeah, you know, the trick is not just pulling out something from the complex. It needs to be... The best things. You yes. know? So pulling out video games is the reason that there's mass murder. Not such a good choice. Mm, not so much. <laughs> is there maybe a, an implication around video games? Yeah, we could study that, but it can't yeah. just be a, a label that we stick on far more complex situations. Particularly as video games so much now are interactive. They're either interactive and you're playing with other people face-to-face uh, -face, or you're doing it virtually. Yes. So this notion of isolation and somebody sitting in their room doing it by themselves for days on end, not as much of a, mm -hmm. of a scenario that's really matched to reality. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's turn our attention now to language and words. We love this one. Yes. Uh, usually with changes like changes in technology or big innovation changes, somebody with power may lose some of that power, or maybe someone with money may lose some of that money. Hmm. So cancel culture, or, quote, you want to make a change that I don't agree with or don't like, 
Well, you're forgetting the privilege and power I have to make decisions about you over and over. So let's talk about this relatively new concept of cancel culture. Yeah, just a fascinating phrase. Uh, We talked about woke, I think, two or three podcasts Mm -hmm. ago, and cancel culture is has kind of come up at the same time. And what's always interesting to me here in 2023 are the things that get lumped into this bucket that people call cancel culture. And there's no pattern to it at all. No. There's just no pattern. No. And you end up kind of going, well, what's the common thread here? And the most common thread I can figure out out of all this, Lee, is just that it's, oh, it's stuff that people don't like that somebody is wanting to change. One of the examples we've had in the last several years has been the removal of Confederate statues, uh, predominantly in southern states, but really all across the country. There's examples of those. Mm -hmm. And sensitivity to that being, in a way, a celebration of slavery. Yes. And people going, you know, we really don't want to have that. As an emblem. So, yeah, descendants of enslaved peoples are going, I'd rather not have to drive by that on my way to work and be reminded of that atrocity. And I go, nobody's canceling anything. No. With that, we're just saying as a change, we want to have the things that that are visible and that we're celebrating being positive things. Right. Certainly about the country and certainly about civil rights and things like that. We don't want to be continuing here 160 years later celebrating slavery. Right. And the Confederacy. Yes. You know, so, but that gets to be ascribed as cancel culture. Right. As if we're canceling knowledge of the Civil War. It's like, no, we're actually with all eyes wide open paying attention to exactly what these statues were about, and we're saying a change needs to be made. Yes, absolutely. So, so there's a lot of other examples, but that yeah. was one that, that again, kind of just, you shake your head about uh, SMH, right? Yeah. Right. You SMH about. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So lots of times cancel culture becomes this general call to resist change. Yes. Change is inevitable and it's constant, and it's, you know, being unable is being unable to change, evolve, learn, or grow something that we want to strive for or desire. Of course not. No, we want to resist it. We want to resist it, yeah. So let's transition into a discussion of a life tool for maintaining a great balance in our lives. And we've certainly addressed this topic, this concept, in previous podcasts. Dave and I are advocates for maintaining as much balance in our lives as we conceivably can. So here is a quote about authors Orwell and Huxley from a guy named Neil Postman writing about them that reflects the potential future dangers of certain extremes in our society. Quote, what Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Mm. Orwell feared... Neil Postman writes, those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Hmm. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Hmm. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy. (laughs) 
As Huxley remarked in Brave New World Revisited, the civil libertarians and rationalists who are ever on the alert to oppose tyranny, quote, fail to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. In 1984, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will, will ruin us. us. So these, these books, Brave New World, 1984, Animal Farm, they're classics. They're brilliant. Uh, they are so insightful about balance and about the need to not have extremes, societal extremes, either direction. So yes. The bookending of these is wonderful where it's kind of like, as a society, we get in trouble if we go to these, either extreme, either, either extreme, either kind of extreme, and so uh, the the author here, who again wrote this whole book, as Lee said about the two authors, this book ending of things we thought was just really brilliant. And here, you know, these books are written. I'm trying to remember now, hundred years ago, yeah. in that you know, ish, yeah. ish, eighty something like that, and they're still so on point mm -hmm. because it's about being human. Mm -hmm and how we need to have a balance as humans between extremes like this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I want to return to one statement here. We talk a lot about going from the simple to the complex and then coming back out to the simple. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism, and he feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Well, there's your complexity again. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, there's so much meaningless information we have to sort through that we can get lost and in. And to exactly your point, who are ever on the alert to oppose tyranny fail to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. Yes. Yeah. 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 Squirrel. Oh, bright, shiny thing. Oh, oh, oh. oh. <laughs> and we forget to, we, we don't pay attention to the big things. Yeah. 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 Over to a quote from former U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower, uh, President of the United States in the 1950s, and he's talking about book burning. And probably a lot of people who are for book burning want to burn books like 1984 <laughs> and Animal and Farm and, and Brave, Brave New, New World. World. Yes. Right? Yeah. Eisenhower said, quote, do not join the book burners. Don't think you are going to conceal faults by concealing the evidence that those faults ever existed. Don't be afraid to go into your library and read every book. And this came from a commencement address that he gave at Dartmouth University in 1953. And Lee, sitting here in 2023, we have book banning oh, yeah. as a huge political topic. Yeah. And the thing, let's, let's all lean in real closely here. The thing that amazes me about this is... There's actually online free sites you can go to mm -hmm. and you can get books yeah. for free. That's right. You can get any book, you know, so let's be real quiet <laughs> and not let any of the people that want to ban books realize that what they're doing isn't going to make any difference. Right. They can do that and get people all worked up, but it's not going, going to, to change a thing. It's not going to make any difference. Okay. Now back to our podcast. <laughs> Okay. Isn't life just isn't life just a hoot? Yes. Isn't it? Yeah, it that's, is. We're we're so funny. We're such funny little animals. Ah, oh, we're amazing. Okay. You guys know that we love AI. 
We love talking about AI. We just we're into it. It's what's happening right now. It's going to be a huge impact on our future. We want to talk about it just briefly here this morning, and we're going to talk about how the better we humans become, the better AI will be from both the standpoint of humanity proactively shaping and influencing the evolution of AI, but AI also evolving to where they are, I'm referring to AI as they, mm-hmm. yes. are creatively and actively engaging with people as they are at that point in time, with AI's own actions and behaviors being significantly influenced by how people behave and act. So it's both us as a is the initiator yes. of AI getting created in a lot of cases, but then as AI evolves, it's the interaction that we hope to have, and we hope that as a society, we get better and better because we want AI to be better and yeah, better. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a very interesting article uh, from last April that was in the New York Times by Herman Lopez. I believe I'm saying his name right. And it's titled, Good Morning, AI Does Not Have to Be Perfect or Have Human Level Intelligence to be useful. Hmm, that's provocative. Okay. So let's start by talking about saving time. The people behind artificial intelligence programs believe these systems will someday become a regular part of our lives and help us in day-to-day routines. Well, how might that happen? Some type of AI will usher in that reality, not because it will be perfect or display human-level intelligence. It will simply perform a task better than people do now. And with a widespread adoption, that could help AI rapidly improve further. So the more people who begin to use it, it's going to perfect and refine and advance. The technology is built on data. And the more people use AI, the more data developers can collect to adapt their programs. There is a pithy way to describe how technology progresses. It has to be better, not perfect. We always say great is the enemy of good good. and so forth. So yeah, Yeah. great example of that. Yeah. Yeah. One example is that AI that can code. People who don't know how to code already use bots to produce complete full-fledged games. And some professional programmers use AI as a supplement to their own work. The current technology is imperfect. It does make mistakes and it struggles with more complicated tasks or programs. But guess what? The same is true of human coders. Quote, humans are not perfect at many of the tasks they perform. Shocking. Yeah, that's from Helen Toner, a director at Georgetown University's Center for Security and Emerging Technology. Mr. Lopez goes on to say, by this standard, coding bots do not have to be flawless to replace existing work. They merely have to save time. A human coder could then use that extra time to improve on the AI's work or brainstorm other ideas for programs, or do something else entirely. Mm -hmm. You know, more time for getting a soft drink, uh, or a soda, or a Coke, depending on where you live. Or canceling someone's culture. (laughs) (laughs) AI outcomes won't always be good. With phone cameras, people sacrifice, for instance, photo quality for convenience. The trade-offs could be more consequential with artificial intelligence. Consider, for example, an AI that can write well. At first, the quality might fall short of writing you can do yourself, but still, like a coding AI, it could give you time that you could use to sharpen the draft, focus on research, or complete a different task. And I would add, Professor Lee Sturt would tell you, this is already happening. Yeah, let me just elaborate on that for a moment. So a number of my students uh, in college use AI programs to improve their writing. And I'm not 
opposed to that, much as uh, Herman Lopez in his article in the New York Times suggests, the balancing point there becomes, when does it represent your own work? And is it representing academic integrity and honesty and all of those things? More to come as that unfolds and develops. It gets to be interesting when we think about going to an encyclopedia to do research or a library to do research. We take ideas mm-hmm. down from things that other people have written. We identify the source yes. and do all of that. And then we do critical thinking mm-hmm. to kind of go, what do I think? Yes. What's a new thought? And it's kind of like the notion of innovation that somebody does is 2% theirs and 98% built on things other people have done. Yes. And I think it's going to be very tricky for us to kind of think through in mm-hmm. this new world yeah, what, what are we trying to do? What is a student trying to do? Yeah. Is a student trying to start from scratch? Or are they just trying to critically think, you know, something that an AI starts them out? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll have a better for a feel for it here in, in a few years because it's rapidly, rapidly evolving. Yep. Uh, but this bot, says Mr. Lopez, also might not care about some qualities that humans value. Perhaps it will spin out falsehoods that some writers won't catch before publishing them online. Or bad actors could use AI to create and distribute well-written disinformation more efficiently. In other words, what an AI does can fail to align with its creators or users' goals and intentions. Quote, it's a very general technology that's going to be used for many things, says Kasia Grace, an AI safety researcher. So it's much harder to anticipate all the ways you might be training it to do something that could be harmful, end quote. AI is developing incredibly rapidly, as we said. The computing power behind the technology has grown exponentially for decades, and experts expect it will continue doing so. This technology is developing so quickly that lawmakers and other regulators have not been able to keep up. More than 1,000 tech leaders and researchers recently called for a pause on AI development so that some safety standards can begin to be established. And this article is from April, so you all will remember, I think, that very public uh, letter that got written by, again, all of these tech leaders and and researchers about the need for safety standards. Yes. Yeah, so just another point of view, another reflection of uh, AI and this wonderful change that's happening in our world here in 2023. Okay, we're going to do a little shift here. An article from the New York Times from some months ago. Uh, It's by David Marchese. Marchese, I believe. Marchese. David, we apologize. I hope one of those three pronunciations (laughs) was correct. Uh, But anyway, his wonderful article is called the world's happiest man shares his three rules for life. It's an interview that was done, and it's with a gentleman named Mat- Mathieu. Mathieu Richard. Mathieu Richard, and he is an ordained Buddhist monk and an internationally best-selling author of books about altruism, animal rights, happiness, and wisdom. His humanitarian efforts led to his homelands awarding him the French National Order of Merit, Richard's primary residence is a Nepalese monastery. He was the Dalai Lama's French interpreter and holds a Ph.D. in cellular genetics. Hmm. Very interesting gentleman. In the early 2000s, researchers at the University of Wisconsin found that Richard's brain produced gamma waves, which have been linked to learning, attention, and memory, at such pronounced levels that the media named him the world's happiest man. 
He is cranking out gamma waves like nobody else. <laughs> so the interviewer asks Richard, okay, so I've been meditating twice a day for probably about 15 years, and I feel as if it has improved my ability to control my thoughts and emotions instead of letting them control me. But sometimes I'll walk by a mirror and have an extreme flash of self-loathing, or I'll get all agitated over something stupid like finding a parking spot. Will that ever go away? And Mr. Richard's response is, well, they can, absolutely. You know, once I was on the India Today conclave, they said, can you give us the three secrets of happiness? I said, first, there's no secret. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> Second, there's not just three points. <laughs> and third, it takes a whole life, but it's the most worthy thing you can do. I'm happy to feel I am on the right track. I cannot imagine feeling hate or wanting someone to suffer. I love, I'm happy to feel I'm on the right, right track. track. Boy, that's such a, it's the journey not and the not destination. the destination comment, isn't it? The interviewer goes on to ask, it's not the best thing to say, but I can easily imagine wanting certain people to suffer. How are we supposed to deal gracefully with our polar opposites in a world that feels increasingly about polarities? I mean, the Dalai Lama could talk to Vladimir Putin all he wants, but Putin's not going to say, your compassion has changed me. And Mr. Richard said, once a long time ago, someone said to me, who is the person you would like to spend 24 hours alone with? I said, Saddam Hussein. I said, maybe, maybe some small change in him might be possible. When we speak of compassion, you want everybody to find happiness. No exception. You cannot just do that for those who are good to you or close to you. It has to be universal. Hmm. You may say that Putin and Bashar al-Assad are the scum of humanity, and rightly so, but compassion is about remedying the suffering and its cause. How would that look? You can wish that the system that allowed someone like that to emerge is changed. I sometimes visualize Donald Trump going to hospitals, taking care of people, taking migrants to his home. You can wish that the cruelty, the indifference, the greed may disappear from these people's minds. That's compassion. That's being impartial. Wow. The interviewer asks, but why does compassion have to be universal? And Mr. Richard's response, because this is different from moral judgment. It doesn't prevent you from saying that those are walking psychopaths, that they have no heart, but compassion is to remedy suffering wherever it is, whatever form it takes, and whoever causes it. So what is the object of compassion here? It is the hatred and the person under its power. If someone beats you with a stick, you don't get angry with the stick. You get angry with the person. These people we are talking about are like sticks in the hands of ignorance and hatred. We can judge the acts of a person at a particular time, but compassion is wishing that the present aspect of suffering and the cause of suffering may be remedied. The interviewer, well, what are the limits of compassion? Could blowing up a pipeline be a compassionate act? And Mr. Richard's response, well, the problem is if it triggers a chain reaction leading to escalation from both sides. Also, if the barrel is bad, all the apples get rotten. So the system has to change. You can see that with this deep divide now in the United States based on ignorance. 
Delusion is a cause of suffering. If you could get rid of that, that will alleviate suffering in many forms. Hmm, the system has to change. I hear a picture for government. I do too. Out there. Yes. It's like things aren't working. The system has to change. The barrel is bad, so all the apples get rotten, not just a few. The interviewer went on to ask, for a while now, people have been calling you the world's happiest man. Do you feel that happy? (laughs) And Mr. Richard said, it's a big joke. We cannot know the level of happiness through neuroscience. It's a good title for journalists to use, but I cannot get rid of it. (laughs) Maybe on my tomb it will say, here lies the happiest man in the world. This guy's got obviously a great sense of humor. Yes. He goes on to say, anyway, I enjoy every moment of life, but of course there are moments of extreme sadness, especially when you see so much suffering. But this should kindle your compassion, and if it kindles your compassion, You go to a stronger, healthier, more meaningful way of being. That's what I call happiness. It's not as if all the time you jump for joy. Happiness is more like your baseline. Mm. It's where you come to after the ups and downs, the joys and sorrows. Wow. Yeah. What a powerful, powerful image. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just reread that. If it kindles your passion, you go to a stronger, healthier, more meaningful way of being. That's what I call happiness. All right. Wow. The interviewer continued, do you ever feel despair? And Mr. Richard's response, well, there's no point. We can feel sad if we see suffering, but sadness is not against a deep sense of fulfillment because sadness goes with compassion. Sadness goes with determination to remedy the cause. Despair, you're at the bottom of the hole. There's no way out. That's fatalism. But suffering comes from causes and conditions. Those are impermanent. And impermanence is what allows for change. Emotions are just like any other characteristics of our mental landscape. They can change. We can become more familiar with their process. We can catch them early. So why would major human qualities be engraved in stone from the start? That would be a total exception to every other skill we have. That's why I like the idea of Richard Davidson's that happiness is a skill. It can be deeper, more present in your mental landscape. We can deal with our mind from morning to evening, but we spend very little attention on improving the way we translate outer conditions, good or bad, into happiness or into misery. And it's crucial because that's what determines our day-to-day experience of the world. We've been talking, Lee, about how wisdom is a practice skill, yes. simple to complex to simple. Yes. And you come out of that with something simple that's born out of knowledge and experience. And we're calling that wisdom. Yes. And we're saying you can practice it. And I love his phrase that happiness is a skill. Yeah. It's it, you can uh, learn it and you can practice it mm-hmm. and get better at it. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. Very hopeful. Okay. So the interviewer went on to ask him, But if I were explaining that to someone, they still might say, okay, how do I change? Is the answer as simple as just start thinking about compassion? And Mr. Richard says, when you are in that moment of unconditional love, say for a child, this fills our mind for 30 seconds, maybe a minute, then suddenly it's gone. We all have experienced that. The only difference now is to cultivate that in some way. Make it stay a little longer. Try to be quiet with it for 10 minutes, 
20 minutes. If it goes away, try to bring it back. Give it vibrancy and presence. That's exactly what meditation is about. If you do that for 20 minutes a day, even for three weeks, this will trigger a change. Mm. The interviewer asks, who gets on your nerves at the monastery? (laughs) (laughs) That's such a funny picture. And he goes, my nerves? Uh, Once in New York, when I was promoting one of my books, a very nice journalist lady said, what really upsets your nerves when you arrive in New York? And I said, well, why do you presuppose anything is upsetting me? It's not about something being on your nerves. It's about trying to see the best way to proceed. Paul Ekman once asked me to remember when I got really angry. I had to go back about 20 years. (laughs) I had a brand new laptop, my very first one in Bhutan, and the monk who didn't know what it was, he was passing by with a bowl filled with roasted barley flour, and he spilled some on the laptop. So I got mad, and then he looked at me, and he said, Ha ha, you're getting angry. (laughs) That was about it. I get indignation all the time about things that should be remedied, but indignation is related to compassion. Anger can be out of malevolence. So we talk about living by ideals, and we've mentioned three that we have in association with the podcasts and books and all this stuff. And, gee, I wonder if he lives by ideals. And I wonder if one of his ideals isn't compassion. I think perhaps it is. That word seems to get mentioned a lot. Yes. Very interesting. So the interviewer goes on to say, not to reduce 2,500 years of contemplative science to a single sentence, but he'll go do it anyway, I might add. Yes. But is there a thought that you can suggest to people that they can carry in their minds that might be helpful to them as they go through life's challenges? And... Uh, is it Monsieur, Monsieur Richard? I will, my French is non-existent, but I'll do my best. <laughs> he says, if you can, as much as possible, cultivate that quality of human warmth, wanting genuinely for other people to be happy. That's the best way to fulfill your own happiness. This is also the most gratifying state of mind. Those guys who believe in selfishness and say, you do that because you feel good about it. This is so stupid, because if you help others but you don't care a damn, then you won't feel anything. Wanting to separate doing something for others from feeling good yourself is like trying to make a flame that burns with light but no warmth. If we try humbly with some happiness to enhance our benevolence, that will be the best way to have a good life. That's the best modest advice I could give. Wow. Yeah. The interviewer concludes with this final question. What is the wisest thing the Dalai Lama ever said to you? And the response is, I remember I came out of this one-year retreat to take care of my father. At the same time, I was interpreting for the Dalai Lama in Brussels. So I told him, I'm going back to the retreat. What is your advice? He said, well, in the beginning, meditate on compassion. In the middle, meditate on compassion. And in the end, meditate on compassion. We will say nothing else yes. about it. The words speak for themselves. Uh, we're moving toward the end here. We have a quote from Martin Sheen. And his quote is, You do it for yourself. You don't expect to change the world. You don't even expect to influence your family or your friends. 
You do it because you can't not do it and be who you are or who you're meant to be. We like to conclude these chats with a moment of optimism, momentum, and gratitude. Today, we express gratitude for those moments when we have crystal clear clarity about our life, its purpose, who we really are, and who we really want to be. Those moments may seem more rare and more fleeting than we would like for them to be, but they can happen more frequently going forward. May our gratitude for those moments that have happened in our past be matched with optimism that they will happen more in our future and create momentum for the remainder of our days in this lifetime, this lifetime that is the expression of who we are. So in closing, what are your ideals? What are your pictures? What are your actions to take? And what is your influence to use? Thank you for joining us. See you next time. Thanks for joining us today. As always, feel free to explore more about Pictures Out There at picturesoutthere.com and major social media sites. We hope you have the day of your dreams, the day of your pictures.